Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everybody. This is Liam Billingham, co-host of Oeuvre Busters. Before we jump into this week's episode of Capote, directed by Bennett Miller and starring in an Oscar-winning performance, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Truman Capote, I wanted to take a minute and remind you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Oeuvre Busters, if you haven't done already. Um, we are up to, on the on the Apple Music, Apple iTunes, whatever you want to call it, system, we have 21 reviews, 20 of which are five stars, and one of which is four stars. And hey, we'll take any review above three stars. No three stars, four and above. Thank you. Um, we also have a new uh, review, a nice written review. Reviews are written, and this one is too. Um, It was written about a week ago by C.F. Heiler, and they said, they give us five stars, and they said, great, capital G-R-E-A-T, pod. I'm completely addicted to this show. I've seen maybe 10% of the movies they talk about on the podcast, but it doesn't matter. I could listen to these nerds read the phone book. What a recommendation. I could listen to these nerds read the phone book. Thank you, C.F. Heiler. It's good to hear from you. It's good to hear this review and uh, makes us feel good and it's important to make your podcast hosts feel good so thank you very much please tell your friends to listen to the show we're next episode after this episode on capote is going to be mission impossible three and we all crave more mi content so please uh please tell the world all right that's it i hope you enjoy this episode on capote i'm liam billingham i'm george fragopoulos and this is oeuvre Sing it again. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. That's this episode. Life sustaining. This episode brought to you by H two O. No, it's H two O. You can't spell Uber without O. And H two O. What are we talking about today, Liam? This week we're talking about Capote, directed by Bennett Miller. From two thousand five. Yes, the year. Of, of our, our Lord, Lord 2005. 2005. Um, a great year. A great year for movies. For movies. A fucking great year for movies. Did One you, of my favorite movies of all time came out that year. Uh, the Clone Wars? Good Night and Good Luck. Oh, I've never seen it. Get the fuck out of here. You haven't seen, seen uh, that movie? No, I've not. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, 2005, this film won Best Actor. It was nominated for Best Director. Yes. 
and it was also nominated for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, George, what's the movie about? So the movie is about Truman Capote. Truman Capote, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and his writing of what will eventually become uh, In Cold Blood. In the 60s. In the 60s, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, no, it begins in 59. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. The murders happened in November in of 1959. And it's just basically yes. about his... Life. Yeah, it, well, his experience writing this book. Right, and then yeah. the things that happened to him in his life. And um, very quickly, he goes to Kansas, where the murders take place, mm-hmm. um, with Nell Harper, who is Harper Lee? Harper Lee, played by Catherine played by Keener. Catherine Keener, who I think was also nominated for an Oscar for this she film. She should have been. She's, She's amazing. amazing. Yeah, and um, sort of his obsession with Perry, one of the murderers, one of the murderers. and uh, how this sort of affects his life and his relationship with da- Jack Dunphy, his partner of many years, and the film sort of contrasts being in Kansas and being in Brooklyn, in New York, and how the what happens in the situation and sort of what I would say would be his sort of and at least in the film's case um more moral and ethical dilemmas as it relates to how he relates to the subject of his yeah. book while also maintaining a personal life and the descent that leads into his eventual death madness from, <laughs> his eventual death from alcoholism it becomes very lovecraftian towards the end which is kind of weird um yeah. so what, have you read the book i have not read in cold blood have you read in cold it blood? Ha- i have yeah it's it don't is don't throw your credentials at me it is amazing is it an actually. amazing book yeah it really is um what did you think of the film i loved it yeah, yeah. This I was trying to think of. This might be my favorite that we've done. Uh, my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman film that we've done so far. Oh, really? More yeah. so than uh, the, the talented uh, Senor Ripley? Oh, maybe, maybe. Well, there are a lot of echoes of talented Mister Mister um, Ripley. Um, uh, but yeah, I was maybe okay. Maybe that one might be my favorite. But this Mr. one, Ripley. this one's up there. So let's talk a little bit about. The, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was like. I thought it was amazing. And I think that one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit with this movie is, well, there's a lot to talk about, but let's talk about what I think is, I think the movie does a re- movies about writers are usually not great. Correct. And they spend a lot of time showing people like writing. writing and yeah. that's an impossible thing to make work cinem- cinema on, cinematically. On, cinematically? Mm-hmm. I forgot the word cinematic. And so in this case, I was sort of, I was impressed by how the film managed to kind of to work with the idea of being a writer, but not necessarily through writing, except for one absolutely amazing scene that I don't I don't want to talk about yet. But I was really blown away by the directing of the film. And I thought it was just like kind of I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, no, it's a great film. I I really liked how um, controlled it was. I really loved it's super controlled, it's super controlled. I really loved what it does in kind of representing or how it represents uh, Capote's sexuality, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about. I l- fucking loved every time Fellas Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener were on screen on together, screen together yeah. like the dynamic that they have, and right. especially also kind of like how by the end of the film it becomes this very strained relationship. Right. And, but it does it in very, very subtle ways. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me, speaking of like other like, uh, you know, like literati and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of, uh, so by the end of the, the film, the relationship is a little strained because in part, um, Harper Lee is now famous because of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. 
And it reminded me of this like famous Gore Vidal uh, quote regarding kind of how painful it is to see your friends become more successful than you. Oh yeah, he said something about when when Capote died. Gore Vidal had a quote that was like, "Oh, his death that's surely going to be great for his career." Yeah, and it's also interesting to think like how the film also ends with the post credit sequences, or not the post credit. Um, where the uh, the, 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 the scene at the end of the movie that it sort of predated the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right, where there's there's a, a, a scene with Tennessee Williams yeah. being like, "I've got to figure out this <laughs> menagerie." <laughs> but where there's that, um, where you get the uh, what the fuck is that called? So like after the film, where you get the you mean like the the, 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 po- the, the titles, like the the closing titles, yeah, the closing titles that, that tell us that. Which I didn't realize he never he didn't wrote, wrote another book another, after yeah, that. I never completed one. Let's let's jump back to the beginning. So the film opens. I we don't we're not we don't necessarily need to go scene by scene, but I think to speak to the way the film is directed and the style, the film opens with the. Um, a young woman going into a home in Kentucky. Uh, Ar- is it Kentucky? It's Arkansas. Isn't it Arkansas? Or does the film open? Kansas? The it's film, Kansas, yeah, it's Kansas. Right? Yeah, yeah, the murder took place. Yeah, in Kansas, the murder yeah. took place in Kansas. It opens with this, correct? It does. We're yeah. her, with her so discovery. Opens opens with her coming to a home and discovering two bodies before cutting to sort of a shot of. Um, sort of the fields of Kansas, and then like a really nice graphic match cut to Brooklyn. Yeah, and we, I, I can't overstate how f- fucking from the first frame of the, of his performance, you're like, I can't believe this is Philip Seymour Hoffman. The, the transformation is incredible. He, so he has this, this voice. Yeah. I can't do it. I don't, it's offensive to try yeah, to do it. He does he, a great job. He does this great. So first of all, he looks, um, we've talked about his physicality, but he looks slimmer in this film than he's looked in a lot of other films. Yeah. And if in Capote was, especially early on, like a very slim man. Mm-hmm. Um, um and he's dressed like he's there. So they're at like a party, like a, I believe in the village probably or something Somewhere. like that. But, it, but you see it from Brooklyn. It's worth noting. He lived in Brooklyn Heights, which is my old neighborhood. So I kept being like, that's oh, my street. That's my street. That was my street. But he, remember, he's at a party. In Brooklyn. And there was that. <laughs> you always have to remind us about Brooklyn. Hey, we live in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, but there are two to three scenes in the movie where he's at parties and he's kind of holding court yeah no totally and those scenes are some of the best and in, in the, the movie and in the my first opinion. scene he's talking about like so having lunch with james that's james baldwin and right. about he's talking to him about it's like novel he's writing right and about how it's like supposed to be like really controversial yes um and again he's like this kind yeah. of witty uh intellectual Funny. yeah and yeah. again like you said kind of like holds court and right from the beginning opening scene that we see him in that's exactly kind of the capote we're given although also later on you find out that he's very insecure there's right, a lot of insecure kind of emotional vo- vulnerability there so after and there's actually a scene later in the movie uh that i, I want to jump to and then come back yeah, yeah one of the things that the film i w- i don't like biopics in a traditional sense like i or what i should say when i say this i don't like films that try to tackle a subject's entire life i generally don't think they work and what i think that works about this film is that a it's it's about a lot more than a performance. It's like a Correct. meticulously crafted, uh, probably the best movie of Bennett Miller's. I really love Moneyball. Mm-hmm. I know you're not a huge I'm fan. I'm not a huge fan. I really dislike Foxcatcher. Yeah. Never saw it. But, um, and I could get into why, but I feel like th- this film is like the most sort of, and he did the, the, the cruise film, which is really good too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he the did Mission film? Impossible Fallout. Like, no, he directed a like movie Speed called The Cruise, cruise which was a, oh. which is a really good documentary. Oh. But Not speak to cruise control. No, he did that as he well. That as well. But that was um that was different. That was that also Yandabond? married in a, a an Olsen twin. 
Did he marry an Olsen? Yeah, he married an Olsen. Oh, wow. It's a little weird. Yeah. There's a big age age gap there. Hmm. But whatever. Anyway, there's And a when wait, when they uh when he said I do, did she say you got, got it, dude? <laughs> She's That's how she gave her She's a you got it, meaning my yeah. my just weird. My hand in marriage. Still, like twenty five. So what happened like, is she was offering her hand, and she said she was you saying got you got it, dude. dude, and it was in reference to her hand in marriage. Yeah, uh, as we all know. Um, no, uh, there's a scene later in the film where he's read what is the beginnings of In Cold Blood, mm-hmm. and there's an after, there's a party after, and he's like talking to a woman, and this older it's such a sad scene. Yeah. This older man comes in and talks about how ferocious he makes. The, the killers to be and the yeah. man's sort of uncomfortable and he's uh, this Philip Seymour Hoffman is like oh thank, thank you very much yeah and the guy walks out and he makes a joke about the guy and he's like bye dad yeah. and it's like it's so funny it's so goddamn funny because it's like yeah that's who that guy yeah. is but it's so cruel because there's this film does a this film has a really interesting relationship to the main character mm-hmm. in that you don't the film never judges Capote, but it also doesn't side with him at any point in terms of how we're meant to feel about him as a person, which I think is very, very exciting. So I believe in that first scene, one of the things yeah. that he says to one of the people in is, that party is he says, like, I never lie. It's like I always tell the truth. And yes, that's really that's interesting right. because it comes back later that. when he's talking to Perry in the cell. Right. And he keeps asking him, It's like, so what are you gonna call it? And obviously it's called in cold blood. And he's already said it's called and he, and he doesn't tell Perry that it's called in cold blood. He, right. he lies and keeps deferring. He's like, oh, I actually don't have a title. And it reminded me of that earlier scene about like this question of like, well, to what degree is he being honest? Right. And he's not. Obviously, he's fucking lying to Perry like right yes. to his face. But it also raises, again, these interesting kind of like ethical questions regarding like his relationship to these men. Yes. And like the, the degree to which he will go to exploit them. Yeah. And use them to create what is... A stunning work of literary nonfiction, and one of like the first sort of like. So I remember uh, I teach I teach I've taught documentary film, and and the same year that this that In Cold Blood came out, Salesman, the Maisel's film oh, came that's out, really or yeah, that's and so there was this interesting moment in American history where suddenly like popular forms, meaning the novel and the film, mm-hmm. were suddenly or, and documentary documentary film, which up until now had been little more like maybe propaganda films or informational films, suddenly took on this very modern idiosyncratic cinematic or novelistic style, but yeah. dealing with nonfiction subjects. And so that book is really important to like the evolution of. I don't think without in cold, in cold blood kind of invented a a, well, that, ge- a genre. Yeah, and that's what the film certainly kind of suggests as well. Yeah. And I don't know enough about that particular genre to right. speak to whether or not, in fact, it did inaugurate like the the genre it entirely. To, that seems to be implied a lot of times right. when you read or hear about the book. But it's definitely the one of the first, if not the first, kind of um, book of its kind. Right. It's kind of like again, like literary literary nonfiction, almost like novelistic nonfiction. So soon they're off to Kentucky, Kansas. <laughs> soon they're off to Kansas, <laughs> and he wants he calls his editor. So by way, the way, elite. we should say that Philip Seymour Hoffman or uh, can we Capote. Just, can we just confirm that it's in Kansas? Because maybe I'm being the idiot. I swear it's, it's Kentucky, but I could I could be wrong. <laughs> Holcomb, Kansas. Holcomb, Kansas. Yes. Okay, so, I don't know why I kept saying Kentucky, except yeah. that I am an East Coast elite well, monster. Both, yeah, stop, stop. Can you fucking stop sipping that latte? You're always sipping. I love a latte. <sighs> I love a latte and a and a communist novel. <laughs> so they go. To, are they communist? Yeah, they're communist. Of course, it's communist novels. Yeah, I don't know anything about being an East Coast elite. So, I just damn one. Some so, of my favorite novels are communist novels. Give me an example. 
Um, so we cut to <laughs> Kansas, Kansas. Uh, you and there that you were talking about the train ride. You want to say something about no? Them? I, I they they take the train, but I think it is worth noting that the movie does a really strong job of contrasting sort of like East Coast New York City living with Middle America living. It do, well, yes, and, and you you yeah yeah. It's just it's very precise, but it's also done in a way where where I'm glad like they're not represented as being like stupid backward hicks no not at all the film is actually great about that and that's partially embodied by the fact that you have amy ryan Mm -hmm. and chris cooper chris cooper plays the detective investigating the murder um which we later is revealed to be that it's his friend right and amy ryan plays his wife and she sort of invites them over me meaning capote Capote and uh, harper lee and she kind of like says like that she knows who he is. So the other thing also like obviously this comes the film he Capote starts writing in Cold Blood after already writing right. um, Bref- Breakfast at Tiffany's, which kind of really launches him. Yeah, there's my a, understanding into the spotlight. And he sort of knows movie stars and is like fairly famous. Yeah, and there's also which I didn't realize there's uh, there's also all this talk about him writing working on yeah. screenplays, right? Because apparently well, yeah, he, 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 he the wrote the play. Breakfast at Tiffany screenplay, yeah. I think, or was involved with it heavily. So he's talking about yeah. also occasionally drops like names of people like, you know, like Marilyn Monroe and Humphrey right. Bogart. And uh, so clearly he is like this well-connected like celebrity. Right. And he plays off that oftentimes, especially kind of like in his dealings with others. Yeah. Um, but is there anything particularly you want to say about that scene? Well, about what I like, what I, one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is it, it does make his lifestyle, mm-hmm. which is like Brooklyn Heights apartment books, uh, but also smoking and drinking, really attractive in the early moments oh, of the film. Oh, totally. Like, they go to dinner at their house, and they're drinking yeah. martinis, and, like, they're getting, like, sloshed, but he's so elegant. And it's like, you know, you were talking early on in the show about mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman's physicality, and, like, mm-hmm. his physicality in this movie, the way he uses his body, yeah, yeah. is so fucking amazing and so, like, drastically different than anything else we will see him do kind of across the board. The cl- there's, yeah. like... The mannerisms and the and the sort of the choices he makes. There's a scene where he like comes down in the hotel and he sort of like oh, yeah. twirls his coat. I tweeted that. how he looks. Yeah, yeah you tweeted yeah. it out. Um, it's just it's so elegant and so beautiful, and he comes off so he's so weird. I mean, Truman Capote was kind of weird, yeah. and the character's <laughs> weird, and he's very like. I mean, it's one thing the film never says is like he's gay. Yes, we know he's gay. Yeah. It's it's like inherent to the the fact that he has a relationship with Bruce Greenwood, who's one of the most underrated actors mm-hmm. of all time. But I guess I was just like taken up. I was sort of blown away by how romanticized I felt the beginning of his life is in this film. It's so perfectly modulated. It is. It is. It's not because yeah. there are also. Yes. Like, don't get me wrong. You're yeah. watching. You're watching hang out with all these like famous people. Totally. You're, you're watching him. Um, well, I mean, like, for example, like, like at some point, um, What's his partner's name? Is it Jack? Jack Dunphy, yeah. who is an interesting guy, a, a dancer that became a novelist. He became a novelist, yeah. But I unfortunately didn't know anything about yeah. him. Yeah, but at some point he says something like, uh, um, uh, "Capote's out in Kansas and he's working on this book. He's you know talking to people, right?" And at some point Jack says something like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be in Spain. You should come to Spain with me." And it's like, "Oh yeah, we'll go to Spain in the fall." But just the idea that they could drop their t- lives entirely because obviously well, they're, writers they can, they're writers, and, and, yeah, yeah, they could just and go wherever. Is, I mean, like, oh, fuck you. Like, I, I know. Go, God, I want to oh, go to Spain a, in the fall. It's really romantic. It's yeah. really like beautiful and 
makes you want to live this life. But he's stuck in Kansas. Well, also, but he wants to be in Kansas. Yeah, and he wants to be because. Go well, ahead. No, no, I wanted to say just going back to what you said about like how romanticized it. But there are also these kind of um, intimations very early on about like his drinking yes. and about his alcoholism. He might drink too much. He might drink too much, and it becomes a thing. Obviously, like later on in the film, especially in that final scene, I think between him and Harper Lee, there is clearly like this indication that he's like. Not only his descent into alcoholism is 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 happened, and he's also really kind of jealous of her success, which is clear, I think, at that point because his his book still hasn't come out. He's he, been working on it for five he's, five years, he's, I think, something like that. He's at the he's at her film premiere, um, which is now like a. I mean, that movie huge. That movie's huge. It's that, still huge. Yeah, I never saw. I never saw. I think it's I great. saw it. It's great. I mean, I I haven't seen it. Did it direct High school. What? Do you know who directed it? Uh. No. No. Uh-huh. We could look it up. We could look it up. If only um, there was a way to do that. But the film, so uh, as we go through the film, we do see that he gains this relationship with uh, Perry, who's one of the murderers. There's yeah. also Ricardo, who's the other murderer, who's kind of a kind of a dum-dum. Though, I, to the movie's credit, makes him smarter than, than the, maybe another film would. But he really becomes obsessed with Perry, who's played by Clifton but, Collins Jr. And he does a fucking amazing job. Who's incredible in this movie. And I kind of feel like I forgot that guy existed. And then remember, oh, Westworld? he's on Westworld, yeah, right? Yeah, he's, he's awesome and in I Westworld, feel, too. But I feel like his career hasn't gotten the kind of traction it, hasn't it become, deserves. Yeah. Because he's so, he's so good on... Um, He's so good in this movie. I mean, he's really, really great uh, at at playing this really one of a kind, charismatic murderer. Mm-hmm. It's just a very, very good performance, and you understand why Capote is so into him. Yeah, Robert Mulligan, by the way, is the director. Oh, of yeah. Okay. If if there's one issue, I have cousins named Mulligan. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. there you go. I have cousins named Mulligan. The Liam Billingham story. <laughs> I, if, thought, I don't think George Fragopoulos has cousins named Mulligan. I, that's my that's my uh, my best joke. And but like every time like, I got check in somewhere, like uh, yeah, last name Fragopoulos, first name George. I should be the only Fragopoulos probably uh, in the entire. In the entire I'm not sure in Athens. Um, is Fragopoulos a it, common Greek not. name? No. I've never heard it before. So the other thing that's kind of um, shit, what was I going to say something like uh, uh, Perry's character. Oh, the only only i think yeah the the only and this is perhaps like very like nitpicking but the only thing that i felt like maybe was lacking in this movie because it does replicate in cold blood so well is is how sympathetic it makes like the murderers tell me more Um, about that what do you mean it 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 it, well just it mirrors i mean obviously like i should read the book what this does you should it's pretty fucking amazing what this does obviously that's more interesting or what the the book obviously does not do is that yeah. it paints capote in a bad light um, the film does the book yeah because, because from the, what, right what i remember in the book is that there's no sense in, like he doesn't put himself in the story okay um and obviously that's what this film does that i think is really kind of interesting one of the most interesting things that it does but i also felt like the sympathetic portrayal of, of the murderers was very reminiscent but also what's happening in the book and you think that's a negative I only. Why do you an, think an, so? Because they're negative. murderers. No, not just because, because they're murderers. Not just because they're murderers. Murder, but just because it it replicates what's already in in Cold Blood, and oh, maybe it's a, maybe that's a weak criticism, but that's why I felt it was like, you oh yeah, like, I, like I've seen this in the nuanced. book, right? But it's not a companion piece to the book in Cold Blood. It's just Correct. a movie that deals with the. It's writing a companion of piece to the book that's based on the writing of In Cold Blood. Right. Really I understand. Really fucking meta. 
Whoa. Whoa. Mind blown. That's almost like what happens if that's we're almost just like, like all recapping a, a show that doesn't exist. Yeah, like who the fuck would want to? Who would do that? A, who would do that? And A. And B, A, who would do that? And A, A1, who would listen to that? I wouldn't. So, but 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 <laughs> going back to <laughs> coming soon, but going back to Perry. Right. He is great. The He's relationship great. that they have is great. And what's very fascinating, and too, I think later on, where they, when they are in Spain, yeah. I think Catherine Keener says something either directly to him or right. to Jack. I think she says it to Capote, right? Like, oh, Jack is afraid that you've fallen in love with, with Perry. Perry. And he kind of... Do you think he falls in love with Perry? No, I don't th- not not in a... Um, Conventional I think, sense. Yeah, I think he falls in love with him in a way that one might fall in love with a, a friend. Like the, oh, okay, tell me, like you and me. Like, like you, yes. towards me. Exactly. Like you towards me, But right? not you towards me. No, I don't feel clearly that. you... I don't feel that way for this you. This is why you don't write write back to any of my letters or respond to my texts. This is your, like, re- this is a professional uh, relationship. Well, I mean, to and be fair, stay my like wife that. is like, why are you constantly <laughs> texting George? So, hang on, I need to grab my phone because I took some notes, but keep talking. Please. Yeah, um, and she's like, "Why?" That one time he woke us up at three in the morning. He's like, Psst, "Liam, Liam, are you awake? Yeah. I just thought about something about Red Dragon." Liam, wake up! Don't you like? Hey, it's me, George. The, the thing about Red Dragon that's kind of cool is this. George, shut the fuck up! <laughs> shut up! <laughs> the thing I'm about sleeping. The thing about Red Dragon. I'm sleeping here. Is that it takes place in the same cinematic universe as Silence of the Lambs? I figured it out. No, um. Yeah, no, I think he falls in love with him as one would fall in love with like a friend. A good that, friend. Like, it's like a, a good it's a, bud. Yeah, it's like a friendship. I don't think it's like a, a romantic beautiful kind of friendship. Thing. Yeah, and I think thankfully the, sh- the I think the film doesn't do that. Like it doesn't make it so obvious, so heavy handed. Like oh my god, he is like just falling in love with him. So let's talk a little bit with with that in mind. One thing I I, I do feel like, and we talked we talked about this a little bit, but like Capote's motivations are never totally clear. I mean, we understand like he's he's well, no, he's, I think don't you think they are totally they're clear? clear in that he's trying to write a book, but he but the the conflict that exists in him is yes, so yeah. strongly mm-hmm. created within the context of the film that I I think it's a good opportunity to talk about Phil Hoffman's performance in this. but not yeah. only phil hoffman's performance but like phil mm-hmm. as a guy because i think he it the film is i don't i don't mean this in in a cliche sense but there's let's like there's a collection of ticks mm-hmm. there is the voice which is so so specific there's the way of moving there's the style mm-hmm. there's the kind of things he does with his hands mm-hmm. that are like you know hard to describe but like very specific the way he gestures at people there's a way he there's a way he looks at people in this movie yeah early on in the film chris cooper is talking about his friend and uh capote is looking at him and there's this kind of like how would you say um intent in his look mm-hmm. that is so like meaningful and he's thinking about it and i sometimes was wondering is this guy playing at empathy is he pretending to be empathetic does he have empathy i had a lot of trouble with how much he actually cares about anyone around him well he i think does he care about yeah the film is i think the film obviously takes us to a point where like clearly he does and so yeah so going back to what you said like his motivations, maybe I was a little bit too dismissive. Clearly, there is a tension. So right. he, he needs to write this book. You were too dismissive. I, and was, I sent yeah. you a text about it. Yeah. Which is weird in the middle of us podcasting, too. Yeah. Well, I was just yeah. like very quickly like. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to get, get, get it out. Get it. That tweet was really mean. But yes, no. So there's the tension between him needing to write this book and the degree to which he will exploit these men. Right. Liam is picking up his phone right now. And the degree to which um, he honestly and sincerely cares about them. Yeah. So at the end, when he goes, which we need to talk about, right? So he goes, 
He's basically told they're going to be executed. They have all these appeals. There's also this one moment that's really interesting where, or it happens a couple of times, yeah. right? Where, now I'm going to pick up my phone. I'm going to look and see what Liam texted me. Where, but I will continue talking because I can on, multitask. Uh, I would just check Twitter. Where um, they, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to like that tweet. Where he said, where he keeps getting disappointed right. that they're, they keep having appeals. Yes. Because at some point he's like, I just gotta I've fucking gotta finish, finish this book. book. And unless and it's it, so interesting. And unless they die, I can't finish the They're, book. Yeah, unless they die. So he needs like the ending to the story. But at the very end, it's gonna happen. They're gonna be executed. Yes. He receives a telegram and he goes to visit them one and last time. And then he's time. catatonic and with his publisher, played yeah. by Bob Balaban. Amazing. Amazing. Great actor. Yeah. Great uh, drive by Balabanning in uh, this. He really um, Balabans the fuck Balab- out of this. It was funny that Roger Ebert, may he rests, quote was Bob Balaban Balabans the fuck out of this Balaban yeah, film. Ba- right. Balaban, 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 Balaban. Almost as fun to say as Jan de Bond. Jan de- no, ba- Balaban's better. Balaban's better. Yeah. Um, Balaban's better. The Bob Balaban story. <laughs> Somebody needs to make that film. Um, yeah. Starring. I'm sign, sign starring up right. Bob Balaban? No, of course not. Who would play a young ba- Bob Balaban? Finn uh, Wolfhard. The uh, kid from Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, that's a really young Bob Balaban. Young Bob Balaban. Yeah. I'm uh, Baby Balaban. Yeah, baby Balaban. That's a Baby Balaban. We need five seasons of the Bob Balaban story on, on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing 10 episodes each season. He was on Mark Marin. And? It was a good interview. It was a good interview. It's an interesting guy. And Martin Mull. Also a good name to say. Martin Mull. Martin. Oh, it's the M's. And the mm, L's. And the, the, and the B's, it turns out. So but, so he goes to visit him when he's about to get executed. Yes. And he has yes, in this catatonic state. And eventually he like brings himself to go visit them in prison. Yes. And there's this kind of like beautiful scene where he has like a last like words They're with sort them. of sitting in a room with a bunch of cops. Yeah. Fucking. And he. Um, cops. Yeah. No, that's all right. Yeah. And he, I mean, you're not totally wrong. And then he like breaks down and right. he starts crying. Yes. Um, and the warden comes in and is like, you got to go. You got to go. Yeah. Like you've had your time. Um, and he's crying and yeah. uh, he feels for them. But so my question is, you mentioned that the film paints Capote in kind of a negative light. To yeah. To some extent. To some extent. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like this, this moment at the end is truthful? I feel like it's truthful, but I also feel like why is he crying? Because does he... I don't think it's a performance. No, then they're not pawns. It's certainly not a performance. It's too good for mm-hmm. that. But it's also incredibly, it speaks back to the control. It's such a crafted and controlled performance. But I don't mean that like, oh, I'm spending all the time thinking about how good. He really disappears into the performance yeah. he gives in this movie. Totally. To the point where you feel like you're just, that you just sort of forget that you're watching this actor yeah. play this part. And it's so different than anything we've seen him play. I you know, the biggest film we've seen up to this point is Love Lisa in terms of his everything else his has been smaller it. roles. And we've missed some bigger movies like Owning Mahoney and stuff because you picked Red Dragon um, and The Master. Seems like you're holding that against me. And Almost Famous. You didn't pick Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. Actually, I could have picked He's that. He's barely in Almost Famous. Is he barely in Almost yes. Famous? I haven't seen it in a very long time. He's only in a flick. Does anyone months. remember Laughter? He plays Lester Bangs. Mark Maron's in Almost Famous, oh. so we could have talked about Mark Maron. You know, if anybody needs their podcast to be promoted, it's definitely Mark Maron. Yeah, we really need to talk more <laughs> about Mark Maron. He, um, he needs more downloads. And Liam's literally wearing a Mark Maron t-shirt. I got it I sh- at I the shit, tour. You know. um, but yeah, he really needs the downloads. That guy's hurting. Yeah. So The performance. It's just... Unlike you know, I would never. I would so. Here's an interesting thing. I think he's often associated with like playing these sort of schlubs mm-hmm. and these kind of like. <laughs> careful with your mic condoms. He he spends a lot of time playing these schlubs 
and these kind of guys who are like, yeah, whatever. And what's beautiful about this is that it has all the intensity of a regular Philip Seymour Hoffman, but because uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, but because he's playing this guy, there's that that was historically a person, and he has to adhere mm-hmm. to that. The restraint that comes through in the performance is really adds like attention, unlike anything we've seen in, in other things he's done, and it's complemented well with the directing, which is very austere. Yes, yeah. I told I I said I said this to you before we started recording, but this felt like in a good way, like a very classically well like made Hollywood film. So interesting. I would know, tell me more about why you think that. Just because in the why sense, do you think that? Why do what the why fuck, would you what think the that? Fuck is fuck. wrong with you? Ugh, tell so me. Just in the sense that it's I don't feel it does any, and I don't mean this in any sort of. I, I just mean that there's a certain kind of like craftsmanship, right? And a certain kind of skill that is clearly. Uh, felt like it's a right. very good product, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It, but well, it, it sounds bad, though, but I, it sounds it, real bad. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm fucking owning it. But okay, it's, it's, it's just it's well crafted. Right. It's beautifully crafted yeah. and beautifully acted. But I mean, I I, I enjoyed the, sh- the fuck out of this film, and I don't want to be deceived like I didn't. But I, I didn't walk away from this film but also thinking so like this is life changing cinema. That's what I mean in the oh, sense like okay. it's very. Um, what is life-changing cinema? Conventional. What's like a... Oh, see, I I don't... I mean, it's conventional in that it tells a narrative from beginning to end, but like there are... There's a... There's an... I think an austerity and a... And I a, love those shots of like the Kansas like plans. Yeah, are and those are... I would never call this classically. I feel like the editing style and the control and the modulation... And the uh, make it uh, to me not I would not say unconventional, but yeah. definitely not Hollywood. Yeah. I, so there's a scene later in the film but, where he comes home from being in Kansas, right? And it the impl- uh, Jack is not there, and so there's this very quiet as this film is really powerful with suggestion in in terms of people. Mm-hmm. There's a quiet suggestion that they're they're estranged in the sense that like Jack is not there, we're like wait ready to see him. He comes home alone into the house, right? And he goes into the bedroom and he puts his really beautiful bag down. And I say that because I was like, ooh, I want to get that bag. <laughs> and he um, he goes into his, what I what is his writing room. And you see him pull out pages and put them on the table and lift up. And he knows exactly where they have to go. And you see a writer organizing their writing space, okay. which says more about writing and the obsession with writing and the qual- what I think like a writer and I mean that with a capital W like Truman Capote right. was a fucking writer and the film sp- spends it's probably a two minute scene right. watching him actually recreate and set not recreate but set up mm-hmm. his home and I was like holy shit I can't believe the movie is spending time on this and yeah, I mean that in the most sure. complimentary way that's never going to happen in a conventional right. movie about but when you think about Hollywood like, writing right but when you think about let's I don't know like um, it's going to be noisy for a second hold on the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or um, sorry or like Sallow or okay. like Weekend at Bernie's right. so like the real like avant-garde cinema oh my god Right. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I just wanted to put those three films together. But I together. think that like that that's one of my favorite scenes it's, in the whole movie. It's, it's not like you're not watching a movie uh, again. Maybe maybe I'm just not being fair. You're not watching like him. It's, the movie is in like an hour an hour and a half of him just sitting in a room writing a book. That's true. 
which wouldn't be good. Yeah. But the movie also <laughs> goes a lot further than a lot of movies would do around this subject. In other words, what's the subject more, of him writing the book? No, his obsession with Perry. Uh-huh. A more conventional movie would build to his obsession. This movie obs- establishes his obsession with Perry in a single maybe two scenes watching him walk into the courthouse at the beginning and just being like all about this guy. And then later seeing him in uh, coming to the woman's home with the jail and the, who's in the jail cell, like where the j- coming to the woman's home where there's the jail cell, or the office, the office and with the aspirin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. And then the movie spends the rest of the time with the push and pull of finishing the novel and being a human. But being. don't you think the whole thing about him lying to him also in the cell is like part of that? like obsession like it builds to that so like he doesn't want to tell him what the t- book is called because he doesn't want to like hurt his feelings yeah but i think that i think that a, another film a lesser a lesser film would spend all the time like watching us have to understand the intricacies of like why uh why he's obsessed with him mm-hmm. and da 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 and the movie just gets past that stuff really quickly and then we spend the rest of the time watching that relationship develop so finally when perry has the scene where he talks about the actual murder it's so compelling and moving and sad mm-hmm. because we've entered into a relationship with Perry through Capote right. and Capote's in love with this guy. And you know, the whole idea of him wanting to know what happened that night is a narrative device that is useful because we finally get to see Perry for kind of in some ways, the monster that he, Right, because you see he's, find the that he's the one that yeah actually like pulled the trigger. Right, even though his narrative is that he um, initially wanted to let them go, and his partner was like, "No, like we need to get rid of them." Right, and then but but Perry's the one that shot them all. Yeah, totally. So I just think it's it's a movie that goes a lot further with those, and I think I don't know. I think maybe maybe it's just a really good movie, which is it what is you a really were saying. Good movie, yeah, but I think it it's not conventional uh, in many many ways, or not like just a. a I know what you mean when you say product and I know you're not saying it in a negative way, but I think that like it's a little riskier than than I feel like we're giving it credit for. Yeah, I think I will say this. I think what it does for me also what it does really well is like the way it deals with his or represents his sexuality. Yes. Tell me more about that. So I love the fact, for example, that his relationship with Jack is not commented on that. Like obviously everybody just like knows what it is or at least their friends know what it is. Um, that they know that they're like in this committed relationship with one another. Um, what I also like is is that there's no cl- at some at some points there is like this interesting kind of like tension between let's mm-hmm. say like the more like especially in the beginning like the, the, between like the more masculine let's say cops and him especially when he's like wearing the scarf and he's like oh yes. it's Bergsdorf or something. The guy says Sears Roebuck about yeah. his hat. It's yeah. great. It's a great moment. And that, he's a fucking snob yeah. at the beginning. Of this oh no, movie. he is. Yeah, I mean he's, he's always a snob, but also. Um, the fact that there's no like scene where like Capote like breaks down, is like it's like nobody has any idea how like difficult it is to be like a gay man living and like yeah, the nineteen sixties. It's just kind of like it is what it is, and it's yeah. not and it's not done in a very didactic way. Is what I really like yes. about it. So, for example, there's also that great scene, which is presented without commentary, where he's on the phone in the in the booth and he's talking to Jack. And he looks across the street and there's a guy looking I at him. I wanted to talk about the scene. Yeah. Tell me more. What happens? So he's talking to Jack. He's looking across the streets in Kansas, I believe. Yeah. And there's there's a man st- basically staring at him. Yes. And initially it's framed and it's presented in this very ominous, sinister like way. Like that guy's going to beat the shit out of him. Exactly. And that guy looks like a cop. Right. He looks like a cop. And then he hangs up on Jack and you cut to like a much larger shot and you see that this guy standing we in front of a bar. a wide shot, George. A wide shot. 
And I forgot I'm talking to somebody who's in the biz. In the biz. Um, yeah, and then there's things on the screen that you see. They're called stuff. They're called stuff. It's called <laughs> property. <Yeah. laughs> Production. Anyway, sorry. Um, and you notice that this uh, guy is actually standing in front of a bar, and he walks into the bar. Yeah. And then Capote follows him into the and bar. Follows him into the bar. And the way obviously it's it's framed is that this is a, a gay bar. Yes. And then th- that that's like a yeah. I want to take a scene you of to a gay bar. Yeah. A gay bar. It's a ween, right? No, that's um. Electric Six. Oh, okay. get with the fucking program. Sorry. Yeah, but I actually wrote down because I that was my reaction to that scene. But I was like, wait, what's going on? What's going on in the scene? Yeah, but that's obviously what it was. Um, and I love that because again, it's presented without commentary. It's not done in any sort of like really didactic sort of way. Do you feel like this film has something to say a little bit about like our contemporary moment? Because I feel like it does in terms of the way it relates this kind of like very fa- uh, this sort of flamboyant gay man mm-hmm. dropped into like what you would commonly call red state America. Um, and like there's a scene when he's in the buying the baby food and there's this little boy oh. who's like a yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. dressed like a cowboy who like has a gun and yeah. like looks at him funny and like pretends to shoot him and like Capote it's like it's one of the most unnerving scenes yes. in the movie because as you said the movie deals with the fact that he's in this place in a way that like makes you challenges you to it never says like oh, I'm a gay man I'm gonna get killed in this place but the threat feels like it's always there. Well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't feel like the threat is always there. But because there's you, no you, scene where like a cop, for example, like harasses him. But you feel it, that he feels out of place there and maybe scared of being well, in a place do- like that. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't because he also like walks up to people and like walks into the police like station as if like he fucking owns the place. Yeah, but I think that's a survival thing. I think that's what's effective about that is that he knows he has to kind of operate in a certain way. And also mm-hmm. he's entitled and snobby and thinks he can do what he wants. But I... I so if he's entitled though, does he really feel threatened? I that scene, but yes, you're right about that one scene where okay. he, where there is that kind of sense of yeah, and there are those moments. I'm not saying there aren't those moments where he feels as if he's Uneasy. like other yeah. and different from what he's surrounded by. Well, that's a big theme of the movie, I yeah. would say as well. But I think I, the way I read a lot of those scenes was just that he's supremely confident in his abilities okay. and his, like in his charm and in his wit. Yeah. And the way he's able to like bring things out of people. I agree with you. But don't you feel like some of that comes from living a life where you're constantly like in, f- you have to learn to transcend kind of that thing when you are, cause he talks about being different in the course of the whole film. Right. So it's like, it speaks to a little bit like a survival mechanism. And also we understand him to be a survivor because he was constantly as a child put into new environments with his mother who would lock him in a closet right. or in a, in a hotel room and like go out. Yeah. Yeah. So he's learned how to like occupy space in a very specific way. But there's always it's beautiful part of the performance. There's always to me that little bit of like just that hair of unease in terms of how he relates. to Yeah, the world. no, that I would say without question that there is, again, like at times this tension. I just didn't feel like I that goes back to also, I think, the way like the film doesn't like go over the top with its like criticism of like the Midwest or like flyover yes. countries. And Chris Cooper is a big part of why it works. It's a great performance. Yeah, totally. But that it's again, this kind of, again, there's this tension, there's this dichotomy, but I think that the film presents it in like a very nuanced way. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Phil because I actually felt like, I was talking to a coworker recently and she was like, you know, it's interesting that uh, she, uh, she understood it. Um, he is as an actor, uh, or as a person, you know, s- seem to, to be sort of coded straight, mm-hmm. but so many of the parts he played in films had this 
plays a queer or a gay character. Mm-hmm. Boogie Nights, this film, obviously, and um, Flawless. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because this perform. I mean, he was an executive producer on this film. So that's interesting. And a lot of what I'm doing is conjecture here, but I, I really feel as though when he talks about feeling different and an other and all these things, it's truthful to him as a per like the conviction of, I mean, he's an amazing actor, so that's fine, but there seems like there's so much conviction to what he's doing in this film that it felt, I don't know. This was one of the first films where I thought to, I thought a little bit about like who Phil Hoffman was right. in relationship to a character that he was playing. And um, it feels like, as a producer on a film like this, you help to get it made. So I was, I don't know if I have a, I just think it's very, very interesting that he would, or that there's an autobiographical quality to the film in some way. And I'm not sure what that is, except to say that maybe the outsider quality is something that spoke to him. Yeah. Um, Not to be dismissive though, but isn't there, or like reductive, but isn't there an argument that like, do I need to tweet at you again about your dismissiveness? uh, That any sort of, let's say, especially I mean, with any sort of kind of art, right? That one is to some degree doing something autobiographical. Yeah. That there's always this kind of like sure, okay. low level autobiographical element to it. Well, I'd hate to say it, George, but you're being dismissive Ooh. right now. Well, you know me. George dismissive Fergopolis. Is dismissive a Greek name? Uh, yeah. Nah, which means yes in nah. Greek. Really? Nah. Mm-hmm. That's got to get confusing. Because in English it's yes and no. And <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> sure, there's certainly an autobiographical quality to it, but... But I get what you're saying. That there's We've been watching... Go ahead. No, that he could draw potentially from something. The yeah. same sense of... Because, again, he might not, I don't know, like uh, look con- like a conventional leading man. Right. Um, that he can draw from that experience. I mean, I don't know. Well, well, okay, so that's something that's really... Uh, that's a good thing to pull from, is that he is, a, at this point in his career, a storied actor who... Uh, is not, I mean, is not like Tom Cruise, though he'd play, he's played opposite him on numerous occasions, Mm. but he keeps getting these parts and he keeps, you know, being a big movie star. And I think it's just interesting that, you know, maybe it is the non-conventional thing. Maybe it's growing up in the, with, with, without, with like, you know, with a single mother as a parent, which is something he thanks his mother for his, in his speech at the Oscars. We're not here to psychologize and look at the outside kind of, life of the person playing the part. But I think I was sort of just like really curious as to why he wanted to do this film. Um, and maybe it's the strength of the character or maybe yeah. it's the character, all these things, but I was just very like impressed by how personal it, it feels yeah. because the performance is so strong. And again, I think it's bullshit to say like, Oh God, this must've been so personal for him, but it, I don't know. There's something I really spent a lot of the time being like, wow, because there's a, and I mean this in the most positive way. There is a very work, workman-like quality to his performances they're always technically and perfectly refined and powerful and there's so much and they're always emotional but the emotion in this this part is so restrained and so powerful well that goes back to what i was also saying about like the um the craftsmanship of the movie in general right which it's fine also i like to say like there's a technical kind of mastery at display here right that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything like wrong with it and the guy who directs his like first i think it's his first fiction film huh you said he was doing documentaries before? Yeah, he did a documentary before and he did a bunch of commercials. I want to look that up real quick. Hmm. Um, but it is a it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful movie. You said, oh, yeah, the other thing also that you said too, that, that I mean, obviously. That you're going to object to, we George? Have, we, haven't, I've never, we haven't read it, so we can't comment on it, but that this is also based on a book it about is based the on writing a book. of The Cold Blood. Um, to just think about that 
in relation to what you're saying. But Tell like, me, oh, what do you mean? Well, just you were like, what is it that drew him to this project? It yes. may not have even been like, oh, I was a huge Capote head growing up or I loved in Cold Blood. But like, right. no, I read this book <laughs> and it like really made me That's think true. about this author and this man and this person who wrote this book and about how this story is fascinating. Not even just the story of the murders themselves, but the story of the writing of the murders. And it is a really fascinating story. And, uh, you know, it speaks to kind of the challenge of in life of, of creating an autobiographical or a film that deals with nonfiction and, and the way it yeah. challenges people because uh, he's writing about a real situation occurring as it is occurring and, and sort of the the inherent complexity of that and how it tore that guy apart. And, you know, it's fun. The last, let's say the last 30 minutes of the movie, he never doesn't have a drink in his hand, except for yeah. in the scene when well, he goes to visit these yeah. guys. But otherwise, he's on the plane drinking. He's at home drinking. There's always a bottle of JB. Oof. There's also gin. It's just... Not a big JB fan? No, it's just the... But well, the movie does a really good job of making you feel like you're watching an Getting alcoholic. Drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, what, it, what at the beginning feels kind of romantic and fun, by the end, it's just like... No, totally. Uh, yeah. So... And there's, again, that kind of tension that he has with Harper Lee um, and kind of what you assume is kind of the end or the ending of their... Or of friendship. Of their I don't friendship. know how it ended, though. I do know that... Yeah, she's she went on to be such a success because part of the film is her finding out that well, Mockingbird yeah. Yeah. is going to get published. Mock. Yeah. 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 Um, I was fucked up. Yeah, you messed that up really hard. But But that there's also an interesting parallel too, because to some degree, their greatest successes are their greatest failures. Because Harper Lee famously, obviously, didn't publish anything else in her lifetime, or she did publish that last book. Oh no, wait, I think that was still posthumously, right? The one that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think that was either by the family may have put together. Yeah, it was To Kill a Mockingbird, the last thing she published. Yeah. I, silence. I, think I don't think for, I knew that. I think yeah. I or had forgotten. It like again made her obviously super famous, but then she famously became like a recluse. I think it's worth uh, before wrapping up talking a little bit about how the film deals with the sort of way that creativity can be destructive without Ooh, ever overstating. Deep. Such a I mean, no, you're right. without, without <laughs> ever ever stating it. Like it shows the physical manifestation of how like a creative energy can be misused or mis let's say misappropriated in, in terms yes. of he's pursuing a truth, but he does it through lies and through manipulation. And that ultimately results in, I think his downfall as a, as a, as a, as a writer and as a human being, because by the end of the film, he lacks, he's still sympathetic because you no, feel yeah, for but, him, but, but he, the way it ends is like, it suggests again, what you were saying that there's in the act of making this masterpiece, yeah. he kind of destroys himself. And the film deals with all that without overstating it. And I think this is an interesting thing that the final text in the film says, the final thing we read on screen says he died in 1984 from complications due to alcoholism. Right. And if you actually look it up, it, it is a liver, kid liver cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, an interesting thing to think about when you think about Phil Hoffman as a guy who struggled with alcohol and drugs oh, for yeah, a large part that, of his yeah. life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I I love this film. What a downer! <laughs> I really enjoyed this film too. I'd never seen it before. I'm glad I saw oh, it. Saw, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Uh, I saw it in 2006. It was actually the first movie I saw when I moved to the Czech Republic. It was the first movie I went. They have assigned seating there. Whoa. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, assigned what? seating, and now I could never insane. live without it. I could yeah. never live without. It. I need assigned seating. Then you were doing. I need it. I need it. Do George, you, I need do it. Do you need it? I need it right um, now. Anything else we want to say about Capote? No, you should definitely see it. Yeah, it's if wonderful. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um. 
and, and read in cold blood. Uh, yeah, I should. I should. Should I read in cold blood and then give you a book pleb. report? Yes, please. Five thousand words. Did you call me a pleb? Yeah, of course. Why? Because you haven't read in cold blood. Oh, because I haven't read in cold blood. <laughs> have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? I have. Oh, did you see the, the play? It's been a very long time. I've not seen. Yeah, the play I haven't now. either. I don't think I'm. Oh my god, isn't that like Sorkin? Yeah, but it's supposed to be very good. Yeah, but I fucking hate that guy. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, he's the, West, the West Wing, yeah. West oh, West Wing. I like the West. And also, I like the first season of the West Wing. And then also, like recently, he was like complaining about like millennials. Like, God. Yeah. Ugh, millennials. It's like fucking. Just it. get a show on Broadway, you guys. Yeah. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Get an HBO show. Come on, guys. Write a movie. Write a movie about uh, the American president falling in love, and that's it. You're good. You're good. Yeah. And we're good. We are. And Liam. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragapos. I was about to say one thing that's not good as a current state of this country, but other, than that, but other than that, uh, we're good. Other than that, it's we're great. good. I'm George Fragapos. I'm Liam Billingham, and this was Peace. Overbusters. Peace. Peace. Bye.